This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. I'm 12 years old, like in the middle of the night, walking through a cornfield, scared to death to get out there by myself. But, I mean, I think that is when learning really takes place. And he came into my office and he said, hey, I'd like to go hunting, but I just don't even know where to begin. And I instantly said, man, I'll take you. It's like waking up on Christmas morning and knowing that the present you wanted isn't there because there's no box that fits that shape. When I close my eyes, I can picture covers of Field and Stream magazines from when I was 12. Just because a deer is standing on my property, it certainly does not make that my deer. So if we can increase that number from 1% to 5%, you know, we could go from 5,000 to 25,000 people supporting conservation organizations and make a significant difference. This is Brandon Butler, and you're listening to The Wild Initiative. Put down your latte and pull on your boots. You and I and everybody listening to this owns 640 million acres. I think he killed more deer drinking his coffee, smoking his cigarette in the pickup truck than I did spending all that time freezing my butt off. Something that I would hope is that people realize that those are wild animals and they have savage natures. I look forward to packing animals out. I look forward to that pain of success. Doesn't matter where you were born. It doesn't matter where you live. I've said it before and you know what, I'll say it again louder for the people in the back. Your present circumstance should not limit your passions. This is Jay Scott of the Jay Scott Outdoors podcast. Hey, this is Ryan Callahan. Hi, this is Jules McQueen. Hey everybody, Jason Carter here with Epic Outdoors. Hey guys, this is Tim Burnett with Solo Hunter. You're listening to The Wild Initiative. Hey y'all, welcome to episode 119 of The Wild Initiative. The Wild Initiative is brought to you in part by the Go Wild app. Y'all, if you are not familiar with it, the Go Wild app is pretty much the ultimate app for the outdoorsmen, hunters, fishermen, the whole shebang. Y'all, I am literally on the road right now on my way to the Elkwoods for my Montana elk hunt. And I am really excited to use some of Go Wild's awesome tracking features on my hunt this year. 
Really, y'all, when it comes down to it, Go Wild is an awesome place for hunters. Many of y'all have experienced a lot of hate from anti-hunters when it comes to Facebook or Instagram, whether that's people you know or just random people who happen to find your grip and grin or your trophy photo. Well, y'all, one of the amazing things about Go Wild is it is a just fantastic community of other hunters, anglers, and outdoorsmen. And you really never have to worry about graphic content warnings or suddenly getting your account shut down because they decide they don't like you posting that picture of your latest harvest. Go Wild has tons of amazing features specifically with the outdoorsmen in mind. So make sure y'all check it out at thewildinitiative.com slash go wild. You can see my profile, all of the stuff I've tracked, all of my trophy posts, and download the app there. So make sure y'all check it out. Also, want to give a huge shout-out to Sawyer Products for their continued support of the podcast. Y'all, I have all of my Sawyer insect repellent and sunscreen and water filtration packed up, ready to go for this hunt. And I have no doubt that it is going to work fantastic. So make sure y'all check out their whole product lineup designed to keep you in the outdoors for longer at Sawyer.com. All right, y'all, getting into today's episode, I have another awesome episode from the Professional Outdoor Media Conference. While I was there, I got a chance to meet Brandon Butler. This guy has been an awesome communicator in the outdoor and the hunting space for a long time. I know y'all will really find some value in this episode. So without further ado, episode 119 of The Wild Initiative with Brandon Butler. We are recording, so... uh you really shouldn't say those things about Kevin. You know, <laughs> Kevin Orthman is a kind gentleman. Kevin Orthman is a gentleman <laughs> and uh, a guy that I'm, I'm very proud to call a friend and uh, very proud of the job that he's doing for POMA. I mean, I've been a member of the organization for quite a while. I believe this is my eighth, maybe ninth conference. And the energy here is just revolutionized this organization. I was so proud the other day when we went to uh, the opening session. They asked how many of you are first-timers, and I would estimate more than 50% of the people in the room rose their hand. And that's what we need in this industry. We need new new blood coming in. We need fresh faces and fresh ideas. And we're seeing this complete paradigm shift from the traditional newspaper writer and magazine writer into digital content like we're doing right now. Well, y'all, if uh, you have not guessed from that, uh, we are here at the POMA conference, um, and uh, I'm here with Brandon Butler. But yeah, so Brandon, we're here at POMA, um, and uh, you know we got a little bit of a chance to kind of talk here and there earlier, and I definitely wanted to have you on. We've had some some pretty good conversations here and there. Honestly, half of the conversations I've had here, I would have I would have paid a lot of money to just have microphones in the center of the table and and picked up uh, a lot of this but I always like to start out with just a little bit about yourself um how did you how were you introduced to hunting the outdoors how did you get kind of your start in in all of this it's been part of my life as long as I can remember I mean my father is not a hunter or really a sportsman at all he grew up with a father who hunted uh, but he was of that Vietnam era, was in the Army, didn't actually get deployed, but was uh, an MP here stateside. And I guess when it was over, he just had kind of lost his interest. He was married to my mother and um, started a family, and, and he golfs and woodworks. And, and, I mean, just an incredible dad. Like, I couldn't ask for a better dad to this day. 
but hunting was in his thing. His brother, however, was a big sportsman. My grandfather, my father's father, I should say, uh, was also a big hunter, but he really reserved it for an escape with his buddies. So I had two incredible grandfathers. Unfortunately, both passed away now. But uh, my dad's dad taught me how important it is to have an escape, you know, from your everyday life. And uh, not just from work, but from your routine, you know. And he was a business owner. My my family owned a construction company that my great-grandfather started, grandpa owned, dad owned. So I saw firsthand the stress of entrepreneurial life. So Grandpa and his buddies would load up in an RV, and they would head for Colorado or Wyoming or Montana, and they'd stay gone for two weeks, and that was an annual vacation. And this is long before we had cell phones or email or any kind of connectivity. So they could truly disappear and just get off the grid. Uh, my mom's father, actually, my, my it was her stepfather, but in my life before I was born, and he really taught me the value of, of family integration into the outdoors. So when I was 8, 9, 10, I was able to start going with my, my mother's parents to Minnesota and Wisconsin. So that grandfather really showed me the value of keeping your family close in the outdoors and the excitement of going to a fishing lodge and traveling. It wasn't until I was about 16, 17 that I was deemed old enough to join (laughs) my father's father on these fishing trips to where he was born and raised at Real Foot Lake in northwest Tennessee. So I feel very fortunate to have been exposed to both of those aspects of outdoor enjoyment, and I live both today. I have incredible friends who I cannot wait to disappear into the wilderness with, but I also have two beautiful daughters and a beautiful wife that I really enjoy spending time outdoors with as well. And God willing, someday I might have a grandson or a granddaughter that I can pass um, what I've learned on to as well. No, I think that's... One of the one of the coolest things about, you know, whether it's an event like this or just people you meet through your your journey, you know, growing up into hunting and um, is just that excitement you have uh, to go hunting with other people. Um, Like, I mean, I love I love solo hunts as well. There's something peaceful and focusing about it, but there's nothing like having your buddies at hunting camp and, you know, sitting around telling stories at night, uh, around the fire or, you know, back in, back in the trailer or whatever, you know, whatever hunting camp happens to look like for that trip. Um, there's really, really nothing that compares with that. And it just serves to bring you all clo- a lot closer together. Absolutely. And, and that camaraderie that comes with shared time in nature is what I live for. But as you said, like, there's also time for reflection and peace and tranquility when you're in the woods or on the water or in the field by yourself. And my father not hunting uh, really kind of forced me to experience that. I was fortunate to have uncles that would take me and my dad's brother would take me often, but but my cousin was three years younger than me. So so my level of, of guidance was a lot looser than my cousin. So my uncle would say, you know, an hour before sunlight, okay, you follow this fence row down to the end. When it tees into that fence row, follow that to the end, then take a right, and your tree stand will be right there. Now, I'm 12 years old, like in the (laughs) middle of the night, walking through a cornfield, scared to death to get out there by myself. But, I mean, I think that is when learning really takes place, when you're exposed to something that frightens you and something that causes you to grow. And 
for me, it happened at an early age. And uh, would I ever turn my 12-year-old daughter loose out into the woods like that? I'd, maybe. My wife certainly isn't letting that happen. <laughs> you know? So I learned early on, like, kind of how to, how to do this by myself. And by the time I was 14, I had a four-wheeler, and I was fortunate to grow up in the country, but close to the city. I grew up near Chicago in northwest Indiana, and we were really kind of on the dividing line between where the city ended and the country started. And uh, had a four-wheeler, and I could ride. Back then, you could just get permission, really, to hunt anywhere. And this is the early 90s. And um, I would ride my four-wheeler to this small 20-acre patch of woods where I had a tree stand up in this big oak tree, and I called it the sacred tree. (laughs) I spent so much time there and took a lot of deer from that tree. Uh, for Western hunters that are listening, you know, you might not recognize the fact that us Easterners or Midwesterners, which I am, you know, we're not, we're not blessed with opportunity to sprawl out over thousands and thousands of acres of public land. So, I, you know, if you could find a 20-acre patch and kind of stake your flag in it and make it yours, that's really where you hunted. And uh, I enjoyed that very much, but I also dreamed of getting out west, what I had learned from my grandfather and the mule deer and the elk and the antelope that he had killed. So upon graduating from college, that was really my only goal. And I did end up in Denver, and, and I only spent about nine months there before I was in Montana for about four years. So I had about five years of uh, extended play in the Rocky Mountain West before starting my own family and coming back to the Midwest and settling in Missouri. So, you know, you graduated, you went out, went out West, you started your family, all this. So what takes you from there to here now? Well, when I was out West, I, I had a multitude of jobs. I was one of those, my, my direction in life was West, you know, it wasn't <laughs> career oriented or anything like that. I learned on a, uh, on a trip actually the summer after my junior year in college and I'd gone to school at Purdue, um, my Buddy's parents had moved from home to Thermopolis, Wyoming, and we went out on a trip, and, man, we were in the Red Desert hunting, uh, well, really just shooting prairie dogs, and we were in Yellowstone right when the snow broke and saw grizzly bears, uh, saw Rocky Mountain bighorn sheep and mountain goats and all of it, you know, things that look like a Disney movie to a guy from Indiana, and uh, fished the Wind River. At that moment, I was like, this is it. This is utopia. This is where I'm coming. And uh, that became my direction in life. I ended up fortunately having a relative that was a CEO of a company that owned Napa Auto Parts. And I got uh, got in with Napa out at, in Denver, and that led to Montana and kind of got me into that territory. Uh, a little bit later, I, I ended up going to work for a pharmaceutical company, which was just so far out of my, my wheelhouse of what I wanted to do with my life. But at that time, I was just... Happy to be hunting and fishing as much as I could and working a little bit in between. And um, I came across a doctor in Lewistown, Montana, named uh, E. Donald Thomas Jr. And um, he's an author, a very well-known and respected writer. And uh, one day I said, man, I'd give anything to be an outdoor writer. And he said, we'll do it then. And, you know, sometimes, you know, you could blow that off, but sometimes that kind of challenge sticks. I'm, I'm the kind of guy that will take that challenge on. And at the time, I was working on my master's degree at Gonzaga, so I was writing a lot anyways. And uh, I started writing some stories, and they were horrible. And he crumbled <laughs> them up and threw them away. And uh, about that time, um, my wife and I became uh, expectant on our second baby in less than two years. So we decided to move back to southern Indiana. And when I got there, 
uh, I approached the local newspaper in Bloomington uh, wanting to be their fishing report writer. And eventually that turned into being an outdoor columnist. And then I self-syndicated the column into a number of uh, other newspapers, eventually going to work for the Indiana Department of Natural Resources as uh, Governor Mitch Daniels' uh, constituent services guy for the Department of Natural Resources out of the executive office, which really kind of gave me a full paradigm shift into conservation, conservation policy, and then uh, staff writing for that state outdoor publication. So it's just like, man, you never know where the road's going to take you. You know, none of those jobs were planned. They started to unfold. And really, everything's kind of unfolded around my desire to communicate the outdoors. So here's the million-dollar question. I'm sure you've been asked this a hundred times, and I, I guarantee probably everyone that's at this conference has been asked this a hundred times. How do I get into the outdoor industry? Oh, man, there's so many different ways. And, yeah, that, <laughs> that's, that is a question that you hear quite a bit. But the outdoor industry, like any industry, needs salespeople. They need marketing professionals. They need graphic designers. They need web designers. They need writers. They need philosophers. I mean, every job that you can imagine exists within this industry. So if you're a, a, a barrel maker for a rifle company, you're in the outdoor industry. If you're a writer for newspapers, you're in the outdoor industry. So it, it's pretty simple. When you think about it, you just target what it, it is, you know, target companies that are hiring for what it is you're passionate about and what it is that you want to do. So instead of going to work for Google, you go to work for the meat eater, you know, instead of going to work for uh, Chevy, you go to work for Mossberg. So all of the jobs that exist really in any other industry exist in this industry. Uh, if you mean by that question, how do I become the next Jim Shockey? Well, you know, <laughs> and that's what I think a lot of people look yeah. at and like want to be, you know, a hunting celebrity that just doesn't happen overnight. I mean, Unfortunately, a lot of people have tried over the last decade to, to mimic those greats at the top, like Jim Shockey and Michael Waddell and now Stephen Ranella. Uh, those guys are like astronauts. There's just a few of them, you know, yeah. and good for you if you want to try and become that. But don't think it just comes overnight and don't think you can buy your way to success, because I think that's what this industry has seen too much of. And, and, and it's starting to fall flat in the sense that. When I was a kid growing up, again, in the late 80s, early 90s, when I was 8, 9, 10, you know, when cable was just starting to emerge, you know, there was a few outdoor TV shows. And those greats like Bill Dance and In Fisherman, you know, Al Linder is still like my favorite outdoor personality. And then you slowly started to see some hunting shows come along like Primos and Realtree and Mossy Oak and uh, Night and Hail and those kind of early adopters and, and those guys kind of you know, they, they set the bar for what other people aspired to be. And that aspiration is great. But then people started trying to like cut corners and get there faster. Mm -hmm. And, and all of a sudden you've got multiple networks with 400 shows on there. And, and to me that really shifted, uh, hunting away from the things that we talked about earlier, camaraderie and family and escapes into the wilderness and food, which we'll talk about here in a little bit, but, and, and it turned it more into this competition, and when deer and elk and all other animals are reduced to nothing more than antler inches, that's not what hunting is. Like to be a new hunter and to think that uh, the value of your experience is determined by how many inches of antler are on that animal's head. That is that is like a, a subculture 
lesson uh, that you should ignore. Like, just ignore it, because that's not what it's about at all. Is it great? Like, yeah, it's great. It's great to kill a big buck. It's great to kill a big elk. We like to challenge ourselves to, to go up against the best. And, and a big, wise, mature animal that's been alive for a long time, you know, it's not easy to harvest one of those one of those specimens. That's why there's so few of them, you know, because the younger ones are so much easier to harvest, because like us as humans, you know, the older you get, the more knowledge you have and you know the the harder it is to take you down so so certainly i pursue mature animals but i've also killed a hundred deer at this point you know um but i shoot a lot of does i'm very into uh providing my family with food uh healthy organic food that comes from uh the wilderness you know i know what that deer has been eating um you know the whole movement back to uh the excitement around wild game cooking that is the most exciting thing i see right now in the hunting industry uh the fact that people are starting to take pride in in cooking wild game and and showcasing it on instagram and and that i would so much rather you know see somebody bragging about uh the venison stroganoff they made than the the 194 and 7 eighths buck that they killed mm-hmm. you know that's what matters to me and i want to see kids faces smiling and i want to see best friends that have known each other for 20 years standing on a mountain you know, smiling and, and knowing that they're using this experience outdoors to, to spend quality time together and then share the bounty uh, of the meat that's collected from that experience. Yeah. It's it's interesting kind of what you were saying before about, you know, people wanting to become the next Jim Shockey, wanting to become the next Michael Waddell, and then wanting it to be instant. Wanting, you know, and and you look at those guys. Those guys... I don't think set they didn't set out to be like okay we're we're hunting to make a TV show. Right. That's not what they did. They hunt because they love it because it's their passion and they're sharing that with other people. You see so many people now that uh, I mean we kind of had, had this conversation on the way way back to the the hotel here. Um you know, people want to people do anything to make it onto TV. But the problem is it does two things. One, you uh, you start making unethical decisions because if your ultimate goal is to make television, then, you know, be successful on television, then why, yeah, then why would you be ethical? And now if your ultimate goal is your, to be passionate about hunting, then you make better decisions. And we've, we've seen this, like, addiction to dopamine stimulators expanded into social media, too. I live with two teenage girls. <laughs> And my buddies and I were talking about this the other night in the sense that, like, there's been technological advancements between every generation. My great-grandfather had to parent around things that my grandfather did that he didn't expect. My grandfather had to parent around things that he didn't expect. My father with me had to parent around things that he didn't expect. But really, over those last few generations, there weren't any, like, real revolutionary changes. And right now, everything is broken. 
Everything is broken. The old rules are just out the window. Parenting a 14-year-old girl with a cell phone is not something I was prepared for. You know, how do you, you know, you can put apps on the phone and monitor it, but how do you balance trust with fear and, and, and know how to do that? And how do you try to explain to this, to this little girl who's emerging into a, a young lady that the number of likes on your Instagram is not what defines you? You know, listen here, sweetheart. I know what you're going through because we do it too. I mean, I, I use social media. I have social media and it's part of my business as a communicator to get information out there. And, and you put a post out there and you want people to engage. That's the only reason you put it out there, you know. Mm-hmm. And But when it becomes this um, addiction, and I really truly believe it is, and I think soon we'll see some kind of medical terminology for some sort of disorder or addiction. I'm pretty sure they've done studies and, yeah. and it stimulates the brain in similar ways to drugs. So, it, it, I mean, that's just an expansion of this desire for instant celebrity status through television and other means. Um, you know, you, you really can't fake being a writer. You really can't fake being a photographer. But you think you can buy your way on TV for some reason, and, and that's not the case. Like You talk about Jim Shockey. He was an outfitter for years before he ever became a TV personality. And he, he started recording some hunts to promote his outfitting business. Michael Waddell was just a kid from Booger Bottom, Georgia, who started <laughs> calling turkeys and uh, landed a, a sweet job as a, a videographer. But then his personality is so... Uh, incredible that it, eventually they they let him emerge as the personality on on that show, but you look at like Will Primos, who I look up to so much. I think Will is an absolute class of our industry. Uh, you know, he was doing marketing to sell game calls, and so everybody used the video in the early years to really promote their other businesses before that itself became the business. Mm-hmm. So, is there anyone? Say that I'd, I'd say that it's safe to say that's kind of the old a bit of the old guard. You know, these are the guys uh, a lot of people grew up looking up to. Is there anyone in this in this kind of new guard that's coming out that you see? You're like, you know what? You are doing this right. You are putting the right message out there. Who do you, who do you see nowadays? That's oh, that's- there's there's many. Uh, I mean, in all honesty, I, I've uh, cut the cord on cable. Like, I don't get the Outdoor Channel anymore. I don't get the sportsman's channel anymore. Mm-hmm. And to backtrack a little bit, I, I, I was the marketing manager for all the Battenfeld brands, which is like Caldwell shooting supplies, Tipton okay. gun cleaning supplies when it was part of the Midway USA family of businesses. And I mean, we had a, a very significant budget to sponsor TV <laughs> shows. And so I got real close with, you know, a dozen TV shows and, uh, maybe I got a little bit too close to the flame, which is why I saw, you know, <laughs> what did they talk about? You, you'd never eat a sausage again if you saw how it was made. Yeah, or, nobody wants to see how the sausage Right. Made. So um, so that is kind of what deterred me a little bit. But, I mean, I'm, I'm fortunate. To, I consider myself a friend of Stephen Ranella's. Uh, him and Giannis came down and, and hunted with me. And, I mean, Stephen Ranella, the reason he's experiencing the, su- the success that he's experiencing today is because he's the most talented guy in our space to come along in a very long time. Uh, he's he's so knowledgeable about what he does and the way he shares his messages. He's so concerned with conservation, which I admire immensely, to, to have a conservation ethic that really drives your passion for the outdoors. And what's cool about Steve, too, is like, he talks about how it wasn't always that way. You know, he talks about being a kid and, you know, shooting birds with BB guns and occasionally they would 
you know, break the law like most teenagers do. Yeah. But then you evolve, right? You, you, you start to understand why the rules are in place and, and what it means to be a conservationist and not just a hunter and not just a, an angler. So Stephen Ranella and the team that he's putting around him, are, they're setting the bar, and, and I think it's fully deserved uh, right now. But as riders, I mean, we're fortunate to have David Draper here right now with us. He's an incredible uh, ambassador. You know, he's the editor-in-chief of Peterson's Hunting. Um, but as far as television goes, I, I just don't watch very much of it anymore. I go back and watch my old VHS tapes. <laughs> like I got a VHS player and I got a cabin down in the Ozarks and it's kind of my getaway place. And, um, you know, I've saved some of those tapes from when I was a kid and every once in a while I'll pop in an old truth four, you know, yeah. watch that and, and kind of get my kids and my nephews and uh, people like that to watch it too. So, um, it's pretty exciting stuff. That's one thing it's, you know, cause I, I didn't grow up with that. I didn't. And it, you know, that was, it wasn't, I talk, I've talked about this a few times on the podcast, how distribution of this, of our content has changed. And, you know, it, it, back then with all that stuff, it was, you had to reach out, you had to make an effort to get that sent to you. And, um, you know, that wasn't at all my life. You know, maybe if we went, we went hunting or if we went hunting, we never went hunting. Maybe if we went camping and there was like a, a VHS tape in the cabin. I may have seen seen one of those, but um, I was I was looking. I'm like, man, I need to find some of those on you know some of those really original you know the the monster bucks and, and all this different stuff. On I'm, I'm sure there probably some of them are online even at this point. Somebody's has to has to have posted them up, but but just to check out that kind of. Um, those old school nostalgic hunts. When I, when I close my eyes, I can picture covers of Field and Stream magazines from when I was 12. You know, the magazines that we would buy off the newsstand and, and read on the way to hunting camp. You know, I, I think that's sad that this new generation or newer generations have really distanced themselves from actual reading. You know, everything's in these bursts. But, you know, when I was a kid coming up, I, I mean... I was a, a library nerd. Like I, I the, the librarian in our elementary school would order books for me. You know, it was where the red fern grows and big red and so many other titles that fell under this kind of genre of exploration in the mountains and things that really just, you know, looking back on it were very instrumental in shaping the direction I took in life. At the time you didn't really recognize it. You know, you're just a kid, but I was always drawn to that. The first time I saw Jeremiah Johnson, the movie, I was like, that's it. <laughs> the trap beavers alone in the mountains for the rest of my life and you know of course y you you take all those pieces and you put it together and it really becomes your own kind of ethos and mantra towards how you want to live your life as a sportsman um i had a really cool experience to spend five years as the executive director of the conservation federation of missouri which is one of the largest state-based conservation organizations in the country. And what was so cool about this organization is the fact that it was really a federation in the true sense of the word, which is a federation is an organization made up of organizations. And we had about a, well, there were 70 when I got there and 104 when I left. So I had to deal with like these specific interest groups, Prairie Foundation, Turkey Federation, Parks Association, 
master naturalists. So it was so far removed from just hunters and anglers. But we also had Ducks Unlimited, Elk Foundation, Whitetails Unlimited, Delta Waterfowl, Pheasants Forever, Quail Forever. I mean, you name it, Trout Unlimited, all part of this federation, all bringing their own individual interests under this umbrella that really led me to serve kind of as the chief lobbyist for conservation in the state capitol. And we had uh, some unique, we have some unique aspects of conservation management in Missouri, which is a, a dedicated sales tax. It's a one-eighth of one-cent sales tax that today adds up to about $120 million a year of dedicated funding wow. for conservation that the legislature cannot touch for any other purpose. And that's aside from, like, Pittman Robertson and license yes. sales and all of the other... <clears throat> so Missouri truly has the best funded conservation department in the country. And that's only for forest, fish, and wildlife. Department of Natural Resources manages state parks, air quality, water quality, uh, and all that goes with that. So we have dedicated funding in Missouri that needs to be protected because every single year it comes under attack. We also have a constitutional amendment that they dates back to 1936, actually, which was the catalyst of the founding of the Conservation Federation uh, that created a four-person bipartisan commission that's appointed by the governor and approved by the Senate that, uh, again, operates outside the bounds of legislative control. So scientists are really left to make the decisions that drive decisions that are uh, forest, fish, and wildlife related. So we have this incredible authority invested in citizens to manage our own forest, fish, and wildlife and we have the dedicated funding to support those decisions and i was really on the front lines defending those two hugely important aspects of the future not only the present but the future of conservation in our state it's a model that we could only wish would be adopted across the country uh but if you know anything about politicians one they like <laughs> they like to control the money and they don't like to give up the power mm-hmm. so it was a daunting task i did it for uh, a little over right at five years uh, before i recently made the jump to an alternative energy company uh, that i i think is going to change the world and I do want to talk, uh, at least touch on that a little bit, because it was, you know, we had the presentation I think, um, on uh, oh, one of the earlier days. They've all kind of run together at this point. Yeah, it was the opening session on yeah. Tuesday. Um, and it's it, it's very interesting. I would, would uh, like to at least touch on that for a minute or two a little bit later. But, you know, the, conservation is such an important, I mean, it's like the, it's the most important part of what we do. Yes. Um, I feel like most people who listen to my podcast now. They understand Pittman Roberts, and they know. If most people that listen to your podcast understand Pittman Roberts, then you have the most educated audience of any <laughs> podcast out there because very few people understand Pittman Robertson or Dingle Johnson. And I was actually mm-hmm. in a focus group here. Uh, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service set it up. There's about a dozen of us in there dealing with a with a, a marketing agency. Per, survey agency. I don't know exactly how you would define that company, Mm -hmm. but their job was to ask us questions as a focus group on how we would like to receive information from the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. And half the room didn't know what Pittman Robertson and Dingle Johnson is. So for any of you listening, Pittman Robertson, Dingle Johnson, Pittman Robertson, all of those names are related to congressmen that were responsible for these acts being passed many decades ago. Pittman and Robertson is an excise tax that you pay on like hunting and shooting sports equipment. 
you may not even know that you're paying it, but when you buy a rifle, when you buy ammunition, and that's why we have to be very thankful for our, our, our sport shooting mm-hmm. brethren out there that don't hunt, because every time they buy a box of ammunition, they're being charged an additional excise tax, and those monies are collected by the federal government and distributed to state agencies for the express purpose of conservation in our country. So, Well, and I actually, I, I, I had this discussion with someone that you think about it, it's like, okay, you know, we go out for hunting purposes. We'll go out, you know, uh, you may sight in your rifle, you know, a few rounds there, but when you're out hunting, how many rounds are you using? Oh, I, I buy like a box of turkey loads every couple of years, right? Yeah. Like I, I'll shoot one or two to make sure I know what I'm doing before I go out. And normally, you know, if I kill one, two or three turkeys, that's how many shells I use that yeah. year. So, yeah, what you're driving at, I believe, is the fact that the sport shooters that are out there blowing off a thousand rounds a month, those people are injecting a serious amount of money mm-hmm. into conservation management in our state. So it's incredibly important that people understand where the money is coming from. Uh, for the Pittman-Robertson Act, and and most of it, I don't know the number, I don't know the percentage, but most of it is coming from shooting sports. And Dingle Johnson is exactly, not exactly the same, I shouldn't say it that way, but Dingle Johnson is a very similar act that deals with sport fishing. So when you buy tackle, when you buy a fishing rod or a fishing lure, when you buy gasoline at a marina, that's taxed uh, additional to normal sales tax, and that money goes into that coffer as well. So, so you're paying taxes. You should be proud yeah. to be paying. Yeah, it is. So you know, okay, you know, I, I get, it. I get that my taxes, my licenses, my uh, all of this, it goes towards conservation. But I want to do more. But you know, I, I, shoot, there's Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation. There's National Wild Turkey Federation. There's a Wild Steelhead Coalition. There's. Uh, a fraternity of the desert bighorn there's uh three-toed quail organization <laughs> i mean there's it's, one for everything right well there's half of the time there's two for everything um exactly you know and maybe i might be a little more passionate about a, a certain species or whatever that is and, and, and so that's that where you should put direction. your money right i tell people that all the time so there is like trout unlimited quail forever pheasants forever rocky mountain elk foundation uh, National Deer Alliance. Wild Sheep Federation. You know, you name Mule it, right? Foundation, Mule Deer Foundation. Mule Deer. QDMA. Exactly. So so you, you can't belong to all of them, although sometimes I feel like I try. And uh, <laughs> uh, you can't belong to all of them. So what is it that you're passionate about, right? So this is the way I kind of tell people, like, support what you're passionate about. But also look at some of the umbrella organizations, too. Like, we've got two guys here from the U.S. Sportsman's Alliance. And people may not know that organization because they're doing a lot of work behind the scenes. But the work they're doing is critical to protect hunters' rights. So they're in in the Capitol buildings. They're in the federal Capitol building. They're doing the job that nobody wants. Like, Mm -hmm. you, you imagine, and I did this job for five years, so I know how thankless it can be at times. Because, first of all, People want to escape. We talked about that. You want to escape when you're in the outdoors. So they don't want to think about it politically. They don't want to think about like what their state representative or state senator is doing because nine chances out of 10, they don't even know who that person is. Like people are so disengaged with state government that you don't know that if you vote for this guy to become governor, he's going to issue an executive order to ban black bear hunting in New Jersey, which is exactly what just happened. 
right? People don't vote conservation very often. I do, but it's a small population that vote conservation. People vote guns, they vote abortion, they vote their fiscal interests, although sometimes they mistakenly vote against their own fiscal interests. So, you know, it's, it's hard to stay engaged with politics. So supporting an organization like the U.S. Sportsman's Alliance, the Congressional Sportsman's Foundation, the Theodore Roosevelt Conservation Partnership. So what I like to tell my friends is, like, if, if turkey hunting is your lifeblood, you need to be a member of the National Wild Turkey Federation. But you also need to be a member of one of these political groups that is funding opportunities to combat bad legislation. Um, I was. Uh, I keep throwing my cousin under the bus. He's he's, <laughs> he's gonna just stop talking to me. But so the cousin I was talking about earlier. So my uncle Tom, my cousin Derek. Derek's three years younger than me. We grew up riding in the same van to the same forty acres, hunting the same tree stands, camping with the same father slash uncle, growing up like like twins. You know, we're cousins, but we're closer than that. We're more like brothers. Uh, love him, respect him. We were on a 35-mile canoe trip down the current river last year in the Ozarks. And I said, man, you know, what conservation organizations are you part of? Thinking he would name two or three, you know, because he's not in the industry. You know, he he works uh, outside, far outside of it in, in energy. Um, in, and uh, he said, you know, man, I buy a license every year. And I was like, What? Like, I, I mean, it, it never, like, I honestly didn't even consider the fact that he wouldn't be a member of NWTF or, or something, Ducks Unlimited, you yeah. know, one of the big ones, because, you know, it's so integral to who he is. And I was like, how, how, how do you not find it critically important to give $35 a year? I mean, you get a, a magazine six times a year that's worth 35 bucks, Yeah. right? And he's like, I don't know, man, I'm busy. I got kids, you know, and I, and then I start thinking about all my other friends that are probably the same way. And the statistic that drives me insane that I heard, I can't tell you, I can't tell you if it's exactly true. It's just something I heard. Right. So I don't want anybody to be like, that's not true, (laughs) but it was told to me by a reliable source. And I can't even remember who that was that less than 1% of Americans who buy a deer hunting license belong to a conservation organization. And in Missouri alone, we have 520,000 unique deer hunters, meaning 520,000 different people hold a deer hunting license. Many of those people buy more than one. So we have about 1.2 million licenses held per year. So if we can increase that number from 1% to 5%, you know, we could go from 5,000 to 25,000 people supporting conservation organizations and make a significant difference. So... How do we do that? How do we, what's, what's the solution? We're, so, we're solving the world's problems here. <laughs> <laughs> Sadly, in my experience, I think people don't really engage until it's often too late. Mm. You know, people are, are waiting for something that they love to be impacted. You know, they, once their piece of property that they've hunted on, you know, is turned into a subdivision or the wetland that they've been duck hunting in since they were a boy is drained and a new Walmart goes up. Uh, once there's a gate across a, a road that leads to public property, because habitat and access is, you know, the number one and number two most critical mm-hmm. aspects of what we do. Without those, we have no hunting and fishing. So, well, uh, those aren't necessarily the sexiest organizations to be part of either. No, it's, they're not. They're it's not. like one thing, you know, 
join RMEF and you know you're you, I'm I'm contributing to elk itself and it well, that's what's so special about backcountry hunters and anglers right now like I'm a member of that organization you know I Ranella has done so much to bring awareness of that organization but the staff that they have there you know starting with Lantani and then uh Katie McCaleb and and so many others that are there do such a good job of of shedding light on the importance of public lands mm-hmm. uh Hal Herring, another man that I look up to and revere. Hal Herring is one of the most intelligent people in this business, and he's you know, hosting the Backcountry Hunters and Anglers podcast and the information that he disseminates. So people have to just choose where they get their information from. And, and if you start paying attention to these conservation organizations, I mean, that's, I mean honestly, that's as, as much as I care about the mission and supporting the mission, I care about consuming the content that they produce. So I'm a life member of Boone and Crockett, Trout Unlimited, Federation of Fly Fishers, Conservation Federation, Missouri, Missouri Hunting Heritage Federation. And it's like, if I just join one of these as a life member, you know, every few years, then I'm getting these incredible magazines for the rest of my life. And Mm. I do do. And I know as a former executive director that those lump sum payments are nice, but you want to keep that support coming in. So I do try to support through different initiatives over time. Can't do them all at all the time. But, but the fact of the matter is, is the content that comes out of the, NWTF magazine, and now I do write for them, so full disclosure, uh, <laughs> Turkey Country magazine, though. But the reason I write for them is because I'm in love with the magazine, and yeah. I'm like, I want to be part of this, right? And, uh, and and that's where I get my information. So I, I think, you know, if you look at how polarized our country is right now, and you take somebody who gets their information from Fox News and put them in a room with somebody that gets their information from CNN, it's like they're going to be, it's like they come from different planets, yeah. Because it's what we're fed, you know? So I try to feed myself healthy food, healthy mental food, which is coming out of Bugle magazine from the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation and, and uh, Fair Chase from the Boone and Crockett Club and Turkey Country from NWTF and Quality Whitetails from QDMA. So that's the food I feed my brain, and that's where I like to get my information. And I think if you're not a member of any of these organizations, that in itself is a reason to join. I think it's and it and it, it is tough because it, it, it can be overwhelming because you 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 there are so many of them and you know definitely starting with what you're passionate about is 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 a good place to start and you know and another thing I always tell people is okay yeah you support these organizations but sign up for email lists um on I mean all of these it's like the first thing you can do on all of these websites it doesn't cost you anything. Yeah, you may have to spend an extra five minutes, you know, closing out emails or whatever in your inbox. But you may not be donating monetarily, but there there may be something local to you that you can help out with. And, uh, you know, like for me, uh, some of these organizations I like to support, they don't necessarily do projects locally to me. But there, I have a chance to help build guzzlers for bighorn sheep or something. And, you know, I mean... I am kind of passionate about sheep, but uh, I'm not going to have much of a chance to be <laughs> to, to hunt them anytime soon. Uh, Monday, I checked my Montana draw, and for the 14th year in a row, I'm oh. no luck on moose, goat, and sheep. So, but I sent $267 to Montana that I don't get a penny back from. Mm-hmm. My wife knows how much I send every year, <laughs> and, you know, and she's like, "By the time you shoot one of these animals, you're going to be thirty thousand dollars invested." And I said, "When I was." When I was 20 years old, 
and I watched bighorn sheep battle and ram each other in the head and sat there just awestruck like I was watching something from another world I'm good sending $90 a year to help perpetuate their survival into the future I'm fortunate to have a career that affords me a little bit of extra money uh, but instead of buying a $50,000 vehicle I'm happy to contribute that money to the perpetuation of that species and other species um, it's not for everyone some people can't afford it. Some people value other things more. But for me, you know, buying those $100 lottery tickets, you can't win if you don't play, right? So, like, every year I'm going to continue uh, to to try to draw a moose, goat, and sheep tag. And in my lifetime, if I get one, I'll feel blessed and fortunate. I also didn't draw a deer tag in, in south-central Colorado that I really thought I was going to uh, draw. And I didn't draw my elk tag in Kentucky, and I didn't draw my... Uh, moose uh, in Maine last year. I'm not doing that anymore because the numbers have plummeted so much. But, you know, I send in so much money every year, as so many of the Western hunters do, uh, just trying to get a chance. Uh, but you have to ex- accept the fact that that is a small chance and understand that your money is going to uh, to allow other people to experience that you know so whoever did draw this year in montana i'm happy for you truly am like i hope you have the hunt of a lifetime and then i hope that this species continues to thrive and someday i get to go do it yeah it's a it hurts a little bit sometimes but then uh, it's like waking up on christmas morning and knowing that the present you wanted isn't there because there's no box that fits that shape (laughs) you know and it's definitely uh but being thankful for the socks and underwear you did get (laughs) well it's one of those things it takes away the sting knowing that if it if it if those dollars weren't going back to conservation it would hurt a whole lot more certainly and you know it's like i'm already willing to spend that money i mean half of these draws you just know you you know it's it's going like you're not even you're not even expecting to see that package under the tree Christmas yeah. morning, but uh, like well I have I want to say probably the max points I have in anything is three at this because I'm I'm so new to all this. You, um, you could still draw before me like that's yep. the the glory of the game right everybody's got a chance uh so you keep playing and you know my chances continue to become greater than your chances but you still have a chance yep. like that's this incredible north american model of wildlife conservation that these animals belong to all of us even on private property like just because a deer is standing on my property it certainly does not make that my deer that deer belongs to everybody and i have to purchase a privilege you know, that's one thing that I think people fail to recognize is hunting is not a right. Nowhere in the Constitution of this country does it give you the right to hunt. Now, there's states that try to continue to pass these right to hunt initiatives, and I'm torn on those because that can conflict with regulations. Hunting is a privilege. Hunting is a privilege that less than 10 million people in this country participate in. In fact, it's drastically less. I don't know exactly what the new number is. I did hear that there's an uptick from the last report, which was devastating. But less than 10 million people out of 330 million choose to to exercise the privilege of hunting in this country. So we that do choose have to be vigilant in the fact that others can take that privilege away from us. Right, Others that, that deem hunting to be uh, less than we deem it to be 
have the power collectively in the 90% of them out there to take it away. But what we know from surveys and studies is the vast majority of Americans support hunting when it's done for the reasons that they deem acceptable, which is food procurement and, and the things that we talked about earlier, spending time outdoors with family, but they're not excited about the trophy movement. So that's why it's so important that the content we do put out into the public eye showcases the fact that we are doing things that benefit you, whether you understand that or not. So the money that we spend on conservation is perpetuating non-game species as much as it's perpetuating game species. So the birds that you see, the trees that you enjoy, the wildflower plantings, the pollinator fields, all of that is really being derived from $100 and fishermen dollars. If you're a bird watcher, you don't have to buy a license. If you go hiking in the national forest, you don't have to buy a license. If you're a backcountry skier, you don't have to buy a license. But for us to exercise our privilege of enjoying those same lands in the pursuit of, forest, or of, in the pursuit of fish and game, we do have to buy a license. So we're funding it. Now, I don't know if there will ever be a time when we get to some kind of uh, non-consumptive usage tag. I know that those organizations fight hard against it, which is kind of disheartening. But there are opportunities. One thing that I encourage anybody to do, if you, especially if you're a bird watcher, buy a duck stamp. First of all, they're cool. You know, it's just something to collect. I got my first duck stamp last yeah. year, and I'm like, oh, this is awesome. And that money, <laughs> you know, I believe it's like 98% of the money, 98% of the money goes directly back to conservation. So buy a duck stamp. Collect them. You know, pass them down to your grandchildren. You know, how cool would it be in, in 2075 to find your grandfather's or your grandmother's 2017, 2018, 2019, 2020 collection of duck stamps. I mean, that's the kind of thing that I would like, you mm -hmm. know. Uh, so buy a duck stamp. Do something for conservation. Do something to support nature and the outdoors that you care so much about. Well, I mean, even why not buy a license? You, I mean, there's so much. You may not go hunting and... I've had this conversation with other people before is, yeah, I'm, I'm not going to be able to hunt this year. I didn't draw, I didn't draw any tags. So I'm not going to mm -hmm. buy a license. And I mean, some States are forcing you to now. Yeah. Like as a non-resident, most States a non -resident resident to apply in Colorado now for the first year I had to buy a non-resident small game license. Oh. So I was like a hundred dollars invested in buying the conservation stamp and a small game license. And I'm not going out to Colorado to shoot a squirrel. You yeah. know, but I had to buy this entrance permit in order to apply for deer and, and, and elk, even if I'm only applying for a bonus point yeah. or a preference point in Colorado's, uh, Colorado's instance. So I, I did try to get my deer this year. Um, I thought I would draw it with the number of points I had. I'm still saving up for elk. I was Phil Phillips is another guy who's here that's had a pretty illustrious career in this space and a guy that I, I really like. And uh, we were talking Colorado, and he said that he had 24 points before he actually uh, drew the tag that he wanted. So I'm kind of I'm I'm at 14, so or, or 13 in Colorado. So I'm kind of in this like middle ground, this hinterland mm -hmm. where I, I could blow my 13 points on a, a good unit, you know, for like 10 or 12 or whatever. But it's going to be another probably 15 years as point creep increases. Yeah, you know, and and Phil's like, look, there's there's really good places that you can go without burning your points. He said, if I were you, 
uh, you know, you're a relatively young guy, continue building those points and, and, you know, 15 years from now, cash them in on the hunt of a lifetime. So, so I think I'll take his advice at least in the, in the (laughs) short term and continue to build my points and, and look for opportunities that are, you know, over the counter or leftover licenses and, because again, if I'm going out west, I really and I'm investing in that hunt. I'm really more interested in coming back with a cooler full of elk steaks than yeah. I am with another set of antlers from my garage. Um, so I wanted to give you uh, a second to talk a little bit about Raceline because it's it's very unique. It's uh, and it does tie in with this conservation messaging we've been talking about. Because honestly, one of the biggest issues facing wildlife uh today i mean and correct me if you disagree but i'd say is habitat and the lack of it and it being destroyed being used for other purposes and this i would say provides somewhat of a solution for that i couldn't agree with you anymore and i'm so excited and still somewhat uh in disbelief of what i'm doing for a living today and that's serving as director of communications for a company called raceline alternative energy pronounced raceline but spelled r-o-e-s-l-e-i-n if in case anybody wants to look it up however um it ties so directly into what I've always done before, which is care about conservation and the future of sportsmen. And in order to have a future as sportsmen, we have to have habitat because without it, we won't have wildlife. And what we're doing at Raceline Alternative Energy is we are in phase one of the rollout of our company. We're digesting swine manure into a renewable natural gas. And I know you're from California, and that's really the market for this product today. California Air Resources Board has a program called the Low Carbon Fuel Standard. And in the Low Carbon Fuel Standard, there's the carbon intensity score, which measures the production, the transportation, and the usage of your renewable natural gas. And I'm extremely proud of the fact that our company was able to achieve the lowest carbon intensity score ever recorded, meaning we have the highest valued renewable natural gas ever to enter the California market, which at this point is really the entire market. So I've listened to you a couple of times, talk to people and you're like, I'm from California. And it's almost like you're a little gun shy, (laughs) waiting for people to be like, oh man, all those liberals out there. I'm in love with California. Absolutely. From top to bottom. I've been to California a lot of times, spent more time in the Los Angeles area, uh, but I've also explored the Redwoods. I've stayed at Benbow Lodge. I've been up to Crescent City. I've drove Highway 1 all the way from Mendocino down back to San Francisco. I honeymooned in San Francisco and Napa. Um, so while I may not want to live there and pay $4 million for a house and, and suffer through your tax rate, I absolutely <laughs> love visiting. Because I've seen some of the most incredible places in the country. I'm fortunate in that sense. But standing amongst the redwoods, I experienced a sense of awe that I just haven't experienced anywhere else. There was something about being in that forest that transported me to like another time and place. It was just majestic and I absolutely loved it. So now I get to go to California quite a bit for work. I spent some time in the legislature this year talking about renewable energy and uh, I'm, I'm fascinated with the fact that California is so far ahead of the rest of the country in terms of, of renewables and, and pushing towards uh, solutions for, for saving our planet. 
because frankly, we're at a time in the history of our, of our species where we have to make serious changes. And California is leading the way. And we're playing in that market now, selling renewable natural gas that comes from swine manure. So we have impermeable covers that we put over lagoons and, and capture the methane being emitted from animal waste. But animals really only eat cellulosic material anyways, so they're eating plant-based meals. We have a, a second rollout of our company called Horizon 2, in which we will be contracting with farmers to grow reconstructed or restored native prairie plants on their marginal farmlands. So never do we think we're going to get farmers to replace corn and soybeans and other row crops. However, because of other sources of income, like corn ethanol, farmers have pushed their production every corner of their property. And we've lost so much critical habitat because of it. But who can blame the farmer for doing that? Right? This is their livelihood. Mm -hmm. If they have an opportunity to make a little bit more money, they're going to take it. And, and their margins are already thin. You know, the American farmer is disappearing before our eyes, and big corporate farms are taking their place. So we are hoping to offer a new economic avenue for farmers to generate revenue for their personal bottom lines while planting prairie plants that create habitat for wildlife, sequester carbon in the soil, sequester water. These native grasses have root systems that stretch 10 to 15 feet deep. Cold season plants like fescue and even corn and soybeans have such minimal root systems that they're not absorbing and holding water. And that's why we're experiencing so many catastrophic floods all across this country. We've taken our, our rivers and we've channelized them into ditches, like into shipping canals. And, and you can't hold back Mother Nature. You know, you never know when Colorado is going to have 300% snowpack like they do this year, sending all that water down to the Midwest, then to the Mississippi River and out into the Gulf of Mexico, taking with it all the nitrogen and phosphorus and chemicals that are running off of agricultural fields because farmers are going right up to the edge of that river, right up, and, and the soil erosion that's going into these river and rivers and the sediment that's being washed downstream, we're creating a dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico that's destroying commercial and recreational fishing the hypoxia down there is a serious issue so what are we going to do about it how are we going to continue to have strong ag agriculture economies across the country how are we going to convince farmers that they can do the right thing but still have a net profit at the end of the day and we think prairie plant digestion to renewable natural gas is the answer so if you're a farmer and you've got 100 acres and 80 percent of it is pancake flat Farm that into corn. But if the remaining 20% is hillsides and, and, and areas that normally wouldn't be farmed, but you've been stretching into it, you know, look at our option of planting prairie grass and letting us contract with you. Very much like CRP or some other government programs that hold agricultural lands out of production. And we will contract with these farmers to purchase that grass and then digest it into a renewable natural gas. So the ecological and environmental benefits are incredible. Like I said, carbon sequestration, water sequestration, buffer strips keeping runoff from going into our rivers, keeping soil on the ground, keeping nitrogen and phosphorus out of our waterways, out of our drinking water, out of our recreational water, out of our oceans, and, and, and making sure that, you know, 
we're utilizing lands in the way that they should be utilized while still offering an opportunity to have a very strong economic base. And we're at a point now where, you know, we know our carbon intensity score from the swine manure. We're working to establish that score on prairie plant grass, uh, gas, or prairie plant gas. And uh, once we know that, you know, we'll be able to conduct a true, like, financial performa and, and go to farmers with uh, contracts and say, for the next 10 years, we're going to contract with you to buy this much prairie grass from you, and this is the amount of money you'll make. So it's it's unbelievable. Our founder, Rudy Raceline, I mean, I throw it around all the time, but the guy is just, he's a genius. You know, I've, I've never been around somebody like him before. And I got to spend two years getting to know him and uh, learning about what he's doing before I finally worked up the courage to tell him I wanted to be part <laughs> of it. And, and thankfully, he saw something in me that uh, he brought me into the company. And and here I am at Poma uh, trying to spread the message and, um, you know, bringing writers up and other forms of journalists up. And, and, and it's so exciting for me because the excitement that I had for it, I see it in these people that I talk to. And when I take them up and show them what we're doing and, and the solution that we're providing, uh, it's, it's remarkable. And I'm, I couldn't be more excited. But it's like, man, you look back on your life, you know, and <laughs> I'm 40 years old. I'm 40 years old. So like I, I wrote an article recently about being at the halftime of life. And my analogy for it was like, okay, I went into the locker room and I'm sitting there and I'm contemplating the first half and I'm pretty proud of it. You know, if I feel like if I look at the leaderboard or if I look at the scoreboard, I'm ahead, like I'm, I'm winning, but not like so far ahead that I can come out and slack off in the second half. Yeah. So I got to come out and play hard in the third quarter so I can maybe relax a little bit in the fourth quarter. So that's like my analogy for being 40. And right now I'm just very pleased with where I'm at and the fact that I've, I've got my, uh, my priorities aligned with, with spending my career doing something that matters while having time to focus on my family and, and hopefully being part of something that leaves this world a better place once I'm gone. Because I, I'm a huge Roosevelt guy, you know. It's almost cliche in this industry to, quote, to like, quote <laughs> Roosevelt. But, you know, the, the, all of the amazing quotes that came out of that man, the one that, the one that matters most to me is the one in which, and I'm paraphrasing, he says that the responsibility lies in doing the greatest good for the most people and not just those alive today, but those still in the womb of time. Because those of us alive today are only a fraction of those that will come. So it's those in the womb of time. And if you think about that, it's just mind-blowing. The people that will be born a thousand years from now and two thousand years from now, when we are so far distant in the memory of anyone, you know, that we nearly never existed, what are we doing today? What are we responsible for today? that that perpetuates a lifestyle that will be somewhat recognizable to those still in the womb of time. Jeez. <laughs> um, I almost don't want to ask my final question because that's such a good spot to end on. But uh, uh, I always like to end just, uh, you know, say somebody came up to you and, and was like, hey, you know, I've, I really am interested in hunting and getting into the outdoors. And, but, you know, maybe it's someone like, myself who from the city does not have these connections does not have a mentor necessarily does not know who to reach out to but they're like you know i want to get into it but there's so much to learn it's really intimidating i gotta figure all this stuff out 
I don't know. I don't know about this. Uh, what, what advice or words of wisdom would you give to them? I'll go back to the conservation organizations, you know, because it is hard. It is intimidating. Like I wouldn't walk out today and try to become a farmer. Like I don't know how to start raising cattle or, or start raising chickens, you know, like I would try to find somebody that has that knowledge. And I know that we're so busy that sometimes your like interests take a back seat. But if you're really interested in becoming a hunter, I can say that I don't know very many people at all who are part of what we're doing that don't want somebody to come up to them and say, I would really like to go. And I've got a personal story. I, there's this guy named Mark. And uh, as I said, when I was uh, running the Conservation Federation, there was like a hundred organizations that belonged to it. And Mark was on the far end of the environmental scale, you know, very much into um, environmental issues and a guy with dyed hair and many piercings and uh, just did not look the part and shame on me right for having this like fear of him when he came up to me and said hey I need to talk to you can I can I talk to you after this meeting and I'm thinking man what does this dude want to talk to me about yeah. like I have a gun hanging over my desk on the wall like, is, he, <laughs> is he offended by that and like I mean I just so blatantly judged him by the way he looks and and now I'm embarrassed by it. You know, I think back on that moment and he came into my office and he said, Hey, you know, I'm just really interested in where my food comes from and I'd like to go hunting. but I just don't even know where to begin. And I instantly said, man, I'll take you. Yeah. I'll take you. You know, like I couldn't believe it. And then I was again, like I was disappointed in myself for not recognizing you know, the fact that, that might be what he wanted to talk about. Mm -hmm. So we, we spent a weekend turkey hunting. We didn't get one, but I'll, I'll never forget. We had this moment where I was turkey calling and he was in front of me and I called this coyote all the way across this field. And this coyote came in just stealthy and got to within about 10 yards of us. And that moment was cool to me, but it was like earth shattering to him. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I haven't seen him in a long time. He actually moved uh, away from Missouri and I think he's in Kansas now. Uh, I hope he's hunting, you know, I, and I'd take him again, you know, but we know statistically that taking somebody once isn't going to get the job done. Right. You know, you, you you're not going to learn what you need to learn. You're not going to be prepared after one experience, but, yeah. but maybe I lit the fire. He certainly had the courage to come up to a guy like me and ask me. So that's step one, you know, have the courage to ask for assistance. And then step two, uh, you know, have the courage to ask again and again. <laughs> so I ran the uh, governor's youth turkey hunt for five years in Missouri and we would take uh, roughly 20 kids per year and have dinner in the governor's mansion. The governor would speak, I would speak, a few others would speak. And that was really my first like foray into true mentoring. Cause I had kids young, you know, I had kids in my early twenties. I've been messing around with my own kids, but now like my, you know, captain of the cheerleading team daughter, I think she's <laughs> also Jim Shockey junior, you know, she's like the next Eva Shockey. She's amazing, you know, and she killed her first Turkey when she was seven. So good luck to her first boyfriend when he tries to like one up her on, you know, being a hunter <laughs> or something, but seeing these kids come through. And in fact, that's how my relationship with Rudy Raceline started was taking taking kids to his farm to turkey hunt and and now you know i'm getting a little gray in the beard and long in the tooth and 
there's just nothing better. Like, that's what I want to do. I don't need to shoot any more deer for my ego. I don't need to shoot any more deer for any purposes other than the fact that I want to be out there hunting and I love backstraps. You know, I love everything that I can do with those, with those, uh, food sources, but, but I'll be remiss if I don't get to introduce somebody to hunting every year for the rest of my life. So ask, you know, ask, and then, uh, and then continue to ask, be like, Hey, so we did this. What about this? And, and, and then don't be, don't be discouraged, right? Like you don't marry the first person you date. At least most pers- most people don't marry the first person you date. You know, you're going to have multiple relationships and you can have multiple relationships in the field as well. So I, I think that's, that's the key is more often than not, I'm not going to go out to strangers and be like, Hey, you want to go hunting? You know, <laughs> but if somebody comes up to me, if somebody joins my local chapter, of NWTF comes to my banquet. So I've never hunted before, but I wanted to come around a bunch of hunters and, uh, this is so cool. And, you know, would you consider maybe taking me hunting? You know, chances are, I'm going to say yes. So, so if folks wanted to find you online, where can they follow along? Yeah. Uh, my personal brand is driftwood outdoors. Um, in the process right now of revamping my website, I'll be launching my own podcast soon. I, um, hosted a podcast for the conservation federation, no longer there. I do a syndicated newspaper column for about 30 newspapers a week. Um, in a bunch of magazines, Turkey country, uh, outdoor life, uh, a number of top publications in the country. Uh, so you can find me just flipping through the pages of magazines sometimes, but online I'm at driftwood outdoors on both Instagram and Facebook. So I'm not, I'm not much of a social media guy, but you know, if you just, you know, I guess you could just Google Brandon Butler, you know, outdoor <laughs> writer, or Brandon Butler, Missouri, and, and, uh, see what you find. Well, I'll make sure to link to all that on the yeah. show notes page. And thanks so much for taking the time, man. I really enjoyed the conversation. Man, it's been so great to meet you. Um, and I mean that sincerely. And that's what's so fun about coming to this conference is like, very honestly, I'd never heard of you before. Mm-hmm. And, and some of my friends are like, oh, man, how have you not heard about this podcast? Like, <laughs> dude, super cool. You know, he's doing something a little bit unique. And, and uh, every time I come to one of these conferences, these new relationships form. And, uh, and I'm, I'm just excited that I got to meet you. And I'm excited that you have this platform and, uh, and what you're doing. So I wish you all the best moving forward. And I hope I see you here next year. Absolutely. Thanks so much again. All right. All right, y'all, that'll do it for episode 119 of The Wild Initiative. Big thank you to Brandon for sitting down with me at Poma and uh, having a good chat. Make sure y'all check out the show notes page at thewildinitiative.com slash 119. Get links to everything we talked about in today's episode. Also, make sure you head on over to thewildinitiative.com slash gowild. Check out the Go Wild app and all of the amazing stuff for hunters, anglers, and the outdoorsmen. Well, y'all, that'll do it. I'm looking forward to talking to y'all next week. But until then, I hope this podcast inspired you to get involved, get outdoors, and plan your initiative for the wild. Thank you for listening to The Wild Initiative. Please take a moment to leave a rating and review on iTunes or Stitcher and head on over to thewildinitiative.com to get show notes, check out the blog, gear discounts, other podcasts from the Wild Initiative family, and more. 